I'm Al Philreis, and this is Poem Talk at the Writer's House, where I have the pleasure of convening friends to collaborate on a close but not too close reading of a poem. We'll talk, maybe even disagree a bit, and perhaps open up the verse to a few new possibilities, and we hope gain for a poem that interests us, some new readers and listeners, and I say listeners, because Poem Talk poems are available in recordings made by the poets themselves as part of our Penn Sound archive, writing.upenn.edu slash Penn Sound. Once again, Poem Talk has gone on the road, this time to Seattle, Washington, where I've been joined by my colleagues Chris Martin and Zach Cardner at the site of the Modern Language Association Conference in a hotel suite overlooking the sound. That is the sound, isn't it, people? Yeah. Where I'm also happily joined by Alden Nielsen, poet, critic, editor, literary historian, whose books include What I Say, Innovative Poetry by Black Writers in America, Trey, the book Trey, a brand new beggar poems of and about blues travelers. You didn't hear this from me. C.L.R. James, a critical introduction, black chant, languages of African-American postmodernism, and recently with Laura Verana, has co-edited the collected poems of Lorenzo Thomas, Bravo and Brava, published by Wesleyan in October 2019, and by Monica de la Torre, poet, translator, and scholar born and raised in Mexico City, who has edited Bomb magazine and the Brooklyn Rail, whose poetry collections include public domain talk shows, and as you know, a favorite of mine, happy and all welcome, who has taught at SVA, Boston University, I didn't know that, Brown mm. University, never Boston University. Never Boston, never SVA. But. Oh, where did Monica? Where did SVA come in? I, I was there last no month. Idea. Maybe there's a mistake you in your sure? bio. That is not me. In any case, else she's I, I, taught I, here and there, <laughs> and now has joined. Really, this is the point. Happily joined the faculty of Brooklyn College in BK, and by Tyrone Williams, among whose many books of poetry are On Spec, The Hero Project of the Century, Adventures of Pi, CC, and How and who teaches literature and theory at Xavier University in Cincinnati, who is the editor of African American Literature Revised Edition, and whose new book, relatively new book, As Is, Poems About Islam and the West that form a meditation on the vacillation between betweenness and amongness, and by Kate Colby, who's had two relatively new books out recently, The Arrangements, a book of poems from four-way books, and Dream of the Trenches, a book of literary essays from Naomi Press, that was a staff pick at the Paris Review. Yay, that was good, that was right. His long essay about pigment and not writing about Charles Olson, which she wrote as a Harvard Woodbury Fellow, is currently in the Chicago Review, maybe this past season? I think this week. This week, great. Mm -hmm. And who has taken up the role of book editor at Essay Press. Hi, everybody. Thank you for doing this. Alan, Hello. good to see you. Kate, Hi, Al. <laughs> have you been enjoying Seattle? Love it. Monica, turn around. What do you see? Is this like really cool? Are you a, are you a, a Northwest admirer? Uh, I, I, an admirer for sure, yeah. <laughs> I have not been here too many times, yeah. but I love it. Pretty I wish good. I could spend more time here. And Tyrone, good to see you. You too. <clears throat> so today, the five of us have gathered here to talk about Wallace Stevens' poem, The Poem That Took the Place of a Mountain. This was a late poem written for the group of poems gathered as The Rock and first published with the Collected Poems. So the Collected Poems is basically new and collected poems, the rock poems being the new ones. Collected Poems of Wallace Stevens, 1954, the year before the poet's death. 
Stevens didn't give a lot of readings and wasn't by any account a good reader of his own poetry or a popular reader of his own poetry. <laughs> um, nor did he visit studios often to record, but our Stevens Pensound page has all of it, including two performances of this poem, actually possibly three. We're now gonna to listen to a 1952 recording, I believe it's a studio recording, made near Harvard University in Cambridge. So here now is Wallace Stevens reading the poem that took the place of a mountain. There it was, word for word, the poem that took the place of a mountain. He breathed its oxygen, even when the book lay turned in the dust of his table. It reminded him how he had needed a place to go to in his own direction, how he had recomposed the pines, shifted the rocks, and picked his way among clouds for the outlook that would be right, where he would be complete in an unexplained completion, the exact rock where his inexactnesses would discover at last the view towards which they had edged, where he could lie and gazing down at the sea, recognize his unique and solitary home. Monica, this is a retrospective poem. It's a, you know, late in life, late poem, looking back. Mm -hmm. What's, what are your thoughts about that? How does that work? Uh, can you point to some phrases that suggest that it's retrospective? That's fascinating to me because, yes, I think the poem is very invested in the act of looking, of mm -hmm. course. And so it's metaphorical and quite concrete at the same time. Um, words that support that for the outlook that would be right, right? And uh, this, this place where he can have a view towards which the clouds and everything else have edged. Beautiful line break there. And then the gazing down at the sea. Mm -hmm. So... Having um, spent some time with Wallace Stevens and, and his notion of what poetry is, I'm constantly uh, struck by the fact that he does see writing and seeing as mm. coextensive activities. Mm. Um, and this, this notion of like, uh, poetry as the unofficial view of being. Mm -hmm. But view, why, why is it a view? So we see that in the, in the poem. Mm -hmm. Kate, retrospective? Does that work? I mean, are there regrets? What's the tone? Well, it has it a culminating quality, like uh, having trudged up the mountain of one's life and career and uh, writing um, oeuvre uh, to lie down and look back. Yeah. So this is metaphorical, yes, but also there's something about climbing a mountain and getting a view. Yeah, Alden? Well, it is retrospective. What is, it, what is it looking at? That's the intriguing thing about this. It's an intriguing poem to come near the end of The Collected. This isn't the poem that takes the place of a mountain. This is a poem about the poem that took the place of a mountain. Right. And the intriguing thing, he says word for word. So he knows that poem. He remembers that poem. Yeah. I wrote um, a poem like that once. There, you did. there it was. No, word I don't mean I. I mean, <laughs> Would you I like mean to? Stevens. It's probably Credences of Summer. It's probably, or Mount. Chakoria to its neighbor. There are there are mm -hmm. there are poems about mountains. But intriguingly, I mean, to get back to, the, well, it's a mountain, never the mountain. Um, the poem is something that reminds him of having been to this mountain that never was. <laughs> yeah. yeah. 
Tyrone, take it from there. Can a poem take the place of a mountain? I think, well, certainly for Stevens, it can. <laughs> um, I, this poem always uh, confused me uh, as a reader, particularly because you, the first two stanzas, just in terms of syntax, um, there it was, word for word, the poem that took the place of a mountain. And so then when the he appears in the second stanza, um, I always took the he to refer as him to gendering the mountain, or the poem, it's not clear which. Mm. He breathed its oxygen. And I remember as a college reader thinking that, oh, the poem is, since having taken the place of the mountain, the poem is a kind of mountain. And so now he imagines himself standing atop a poem rather than a wow. mountain. Wow. So this is almost Borgesian. It's almost like the verb form in the second stanza should be he had breathed its oxygen. Back then when he wrote the poem that took place of mountain, and now he's probably presumably reading about it in the book that's that's not even open on the table, and he had breathed back then when he was... But like, this is the oxygen of the poem that he's breathing. That's what I mean, yeah, yeah. not the mountain. Yeah. Right, that's... Even when it's... The, even when so the book... The, the poem that once was a mountain is no, now turned... The poem was never a mountain. The, the old one took was. a place of a mountain. It, it stood in for a mountain. Exactly, yeah. Much right, easier so to climb. Even, <laughs> right, as Alden put it, even when the book lay turned. So that suggests, too, that the poem is, has, not surprising for Stevens, has reached this kind of transcendental, ethereal zone yeah. so that he doesn't even need yeah. the book anymore because yeah. it's in this yes. other place. Mm. Yeah, the head mm. comes in later. Kate, there's a lot of, um, a little bit of refusal, rejection, self-doubt, uh, or I'm now beyond that stuff I was doing. Uh, what's the tone? Help us with the tone. I, I don't know. I, it reminded me of um, Keats's upon looking into what is it called Chapman's Homer, Homer yeah. yeah where you know he ends on the peak of Darien mm -hmm. and the you know the poem has incited that peaking of the mountain yeah. but i also i i've always read this as kind of a meta ars poetica where the poem is it's not the just very, an ars poetica it's a meta ars poetica right so i also read this poem as the poem that's replacing the sort of foregone idea of a mountain um, and that you know, the the poem becomes, or the poem exists in the process of having written it. So it, I think it's both those things. He's looking back at his oeuvre, but he's also still writing into it hmm. and adding it. There it is, word mm -hmm. for word. Mm -hmm. Word for word, Monica. That's great, isn't it? Word it, for word. It is, it is. But I want to, I want to actually go back a phrase, there it was, mm -hmm. right? It's not mm -hmm. there it is, there it was. The past tense and the, the, the use of the third person, mm -hmm. the remove, everything is at a remove. So I was thinking of the tone of the poem mm -hmm. as being not, it's not celebratory as much as it is to me a bit mournful perhaps. Mm -hmm. Mournful in the sense that yes, the, the, that view, that view comes at a cost and the cost is that distance and that remove. So the house is, and, 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 and lonely. The view is lonely. It's unique, but it's lonely. Mm -hmm. It's your own, but you're alone, in other words. Um, so maybe I'm not really answering your question as to word for word, but I'm looking at these words and all of them seem to point to things that are standing in for something else. So we keep talking about the poet, mm -hmm. but he refers to himself here as a third person. Mm -hmm. 
And so even this, this, and this possibility, this view comes at the expense of a great remove that allows for a view that unfortunately distance oneself from the thing that would be, ironically, the home. Can even the most naive understanding of poetry, let's say when we were all first exposed to poetry and we thought, wow, this poem is evoking the world in such a powerful way that I temporarily don't need the world. Can, hmm. you know, invoking that naivete word for word suggests if I'm good enough, I can make a poem that makes a mountain either parallel to reality or secondary or not necessary, especially now that I'm old and tired. I only needed a, po a, a poem. Um, word for word suggests apples to apples conceit hmm. making. Hmm. Can you go further with that? Am I, well, and the, you know, this stuff about how he recomposed the pines. Exactly. Yeah, that's mm -hmm. what I was going to mm -hmm. point to because the mountain and the world itself were not sufficient as they were. <laughs> right. uh, this right. reminds me of Russell Atkins' poem about you know, being on the advanced slope, and because he had seen paintings before, he's re rearranging things exactly. in his mind. Uh, it's a little different from the anecdote of the jar and a couple of other places in Stevens, um, but it, it, this he that he's speaking of was someone who had needed things to be different from the way that they were, right. and so wrote them differently, right. recomposed them. Right. And that's what he knows word for word. Anecdote <laughs> of the jar is so much more aggressive and it's early. I place the jar in Tennessee Round and it basically it takes dominion everywhere so that nature ain't nothing compared to my artifice, this mm -hmm. jar, yeah. right? And here he's a little more humble about the relationship between the takeover because that's sort of a poem about colonizing Tennessee mm -hmm. with modernism. Mm -hmm. <laughs> this seems to be more thoughtful and sad. I don't know. Tyrone, word for word, I'm still, I'm still a little stuck mm -hmm. on that. Um, is he building something that parallels Poem Mountain, Poem Mountain, Poem Mountain? Well, that's, I mean, I take this to be just as, um, if you, to use your word, your verb, colonizing as Anecdote of a Jar, because, you know, there in Anecdote of a Jar, the point, the jar, you know, takes, so sort of dominates nature and so forth. But here, the implication is that the mountain doesn't even need to exist mm. because the poem has taken its place. Mm. So it's not even dominating the mountain, it's made the mountain irrelevant. It doesn't even need to be there mm. because the poem is sufficient. Um, and that, I take that word for word as a kind of hubris, you know, almost like a creation myth that what I was able to create word for word is almost like equivalent to, you know, this genesis in some ways that, you know, just as there's this sort of, you know, step-by-step -step process of creating the world, the universe, so too I have been able to mm. do that same, repeat that same process and better, and do it better. Mm. It's very sly in a way because it's implicating that there would be such an attempt to describe this mountain minutiously, right? Mm -hmm. As you said, word for word, like uh, um, uh, encompassing or like addressing every single one of the aspects of the mountain. But what's going on here is is the a move towards the generic, right? There's a move towards the generic and a process of abstraction. So what I see in word for word, actually, on multiple, like going back to what I'm seeing, I'm seeing he's he's basically pointing to substitution where the attempt to even render the mountain or the rock in an exact way that would address or describe its particularities 
is pointless. We don't need it. Word for word, substitution, okay, abstraction. Okay, wait a minute. Let, let me slightly press back, and I know Kay okay. wants to say something here. So word for word is an idiom. It means yes. um, uh, uh, every, every aspect, word for word, yes. usually referring to a document, mm -hmm. sometimes a legal document, right. Right, word for word. What I meant sort of was word for thing. In other words, mm -hmm. the one-to-one -one recreation through figuration or conceit, the mm -hmm. power of poetry to do, you know, the romantics did this with mountains all the mm -hmm. time, right? I'm mm -hmm. going to make a poem that's like a mountain. Mm -hmm. And that likeness gets created word for thing, word for thing, word for thing, word for thing. Word for word is almost a pun on word for thing, given that hubris. Mm -hmm. um, so I don't know where that leaves us. Kate, what were you gonna say? I was just gonna say, I also read the mountain as the poet, the late career poet looking back and seeing that he's replaced his mind and his life for the word, with the words for it. Mm -hmm. So he's slowly sort of uh, worded himself toward death, but in his stead will be his, you know, his, his works. So monument, eminence, big, you know, pinnacle of achievement, is that what you mean? His, the, Stephen's sense of his own, of his self as a, uh, having well, I mean, created a great career, looking back at the time when he didn't have it. just worded his mind over time, like rendered it in language, right. and that in the end um, is the mountain, just mm -hmm. as he's the mountain, and this poem's the mountain, and he's reflecting on a different poem that was also the mountain. It all sort of uh, coalesces and mm -hmm. becomes complete. I take word for word quite literally. He's talking about that poem, and unlike the mountain, the poem hasn't changed. It's mm -hmm. still there. It's still mm -hmm. word for word. As we move through the poem, we start to see these, this eruption of conditional verb tenses. Um, so at the time when he had done these things, because he had needed these things, it was all in reference to something he would discover, or something where the place where he could lie. These things weren't findable in the world as it was. Mm. He has to imagine them. Mm. Um, it, it's odd because he wants to have the world as it is, but he also has this sense that it somehow would not be satisfying, mm. even though we've already gotten through these poems talking about what it requires for something to be to satisfy the mind and so mm. forth. Um, his own direction is exactly that, you know. <laughs> Everyone has their own direction and he needed a place to go to. But the, the wording of that is what's always puzzled me. Uh, it reminded him how he had needed, fine, a place to go to, fine, in his own direction. Um, if you Jammed have a, prepositions a little bit there. If, if you have a direction, <laughs> you're already going in it, aren't you? you know? Well, it's there's puzzling. also that kind of poetic adage of discovering what it is you have to say in the act of saying it. So there's that sort of like rolling relationship with his with his own work and mm. uh, it them like collaborating in having found this place together. If a sixth grader were to come to me or fifth grader and said, um, I heard you were working on this poem. What is, what's happening in this poem? What's the story? I'm going to tell you what I would tell this fifth grader, and you tell me if you totally disagree or if I got this right. Um, uh, there once was an old poet who was very accomplished, who had written a lot of poems, and one or more of them were poems in which he tried to write a mountain in the poem. And he decided in his old age to reread re that poem to get a sense of what he was like when he was the poet who would write that. 
but he decided not to read it for one reason or another. The book was turned away from him or it was dusty. Or he didn't need to because so he basically rethought it. And as he rethought it, he reascended the mountain and got the view of himself, his earlier self that he had wanted. I guess the reason I told that ridiculous story, because who knows, right, mm. is because I want to emphasize this idea that he wasn't rereading. He's made it clear, he's mm. signaled to us, mm -hmm. Tyrone, that he doesn't want to read the poem. He seems to be absorbing it or rethinking or, or getting himself in the position he was in once when he thought he could do that. Does any of that make any sense to you? I mean, when you put it that way, I guess I think about it always in terms of, the, you know, the poem capital P that he's referring to there, which is not any single poem, but rather right. the constellation of his work that constitutes right. the poem. Maybe the poetics the, or the, 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 can, the body of work. Yeah, the entire body of work right. is what I would, would say. But, you know, it's, I mean, it's really not that much different from my point of view than, you know, all those... 16th and 17th century poems, including Shakespeare, about, you know, so long as men speak English, so long this poem will exist. You know, that's this notion that the poem is mm -hmm. sufficient mm -hmm. and doesn't really need even any reference to anything outside itself. Mm -hmm. Who wants to talk about gazing down at the sea and recognizing a unique and solitary home? It's a very literary. Mm -hmm. There's Whitman in there. There's all kinds of things. Well, you, when I first read this poem in fifth grade, <laughs> oh, um, you were the fifth grader. Yes. What's what struck me is the thing he's nostalgic for, the thing he's remembered. It's not even the mountain. It's a need that he had. Right. Okay. This is what he's reminded of that he, there was a time when he had this need mm -hmm. to what be able to need? stand in this exact place and see these things, the unique and solitary. And now home. he doesn't need that anymore. Well, or can't I don't know. It? I don't know which it is. Do, is it? Did he finally have to give that up? Because mm -hmm. uh, it's not clear that he ever did find it. It feels to me like what he needs to be reminded of is that need. Yeah, exactly. And, well, and he's going back to that old desire right. that, that was yeah. the engine for the poem, and the rest is to be up for grabs. Yeah, to be in that exact place he needed to be to see the, those things. Yeah. Kate. But his unique and solitary home is equally um, the top of the mountain where he's lying. But he's not lying. He's not lying. <laughs> he needed oh, to be I, <laughs> Right, well, the subjunctive is where really he could important. Lie, yeah, right. he could lie. But Kate's point is still yeah. really obtained. So you're saying basically, this is a circular situation. That's where that's home. He's looking back at the guy who is about to start climbing the mountain. He's looking back down at the home as it's being established up here. It's really hard to know what the outlook is. Did I make much more complicated? a simple point you were making. <laughs> no, no, not at all. It's, I mean, to me it reads that, you know, his home is back at the sea and it is equally the view of the sea from above. I also have this probably completely wrong-headed idea that the colon, what follows the colon is the thing he was really seeking, which was that exact rock hmm. where his inexactnesses would Blah blah blah, yeah. right? But like he's like, I'm going to back back up that mountain or that poem. I'm going to find that moment where the where the fantasy that I could be a poet who could do exact things, 
I finally gave up. I want to get to that point in my career where I wrote a poem where I realized I can't do exactness. In that sense, the last, those last two stanzas then sort of, you know, the last stanza is a kind of recognition too that he never got to that exactness, you know, that he, that may have been where he wanted to be, but he never got there. Um, because to have gotten there would be to have been somewhere in a place where he could gaze down at the sea. And you remember the sea for Stevens is meaninglessness, you know, in his other poems. So I think, not to do a mini lecture on phenomenology, but it is. <laughs> do a mini lecture on phenomenology right I can, now? I, I can, but I'm Let's not going to. Let's bracket that. <laughs> <laughs> Let's bracket that, exactly. Um, that it is, you know, the, so the exact rock is, is the desire for the thing in itself. That's what that would well, be. That's exactly what, yeah, the absolutely. Exact, the exact right. rock is where he would discover. Where he would discover. But what, he's gonna dis what he would discover is the view towards which he kept edging. Towards right. which he kept He never edging. gets there. He never right. gets yeah. there, because, and that's the nature of phenomenology, that you never get to the things themselves. Monica. What's really striking now, it just opened up the poem. That's why I love poem talk. Um, Wait, plug you from, said you love poem no, talk? Yes, I do. Can we We can talk sure about that, but no, because, because you're gonna be now doing ads now. You're going to be doing ads for poem talk. Are you exactly, saying something no. about my branding techniques? <laughs> okay, let's get to the point first. The mountain. Okay, no, the, the subjunctive here really tricked me because, because I, I, I overlooked it, even though I read the poem multiple times. So I'm seeing now that there is a futurity within the poem that is seen retrospectively. It's the future that the former self-imagined that is within this poem that has a different home. It's, it's taking place in a different home in a different temporality. And he went back to that moment where the future was imagined. recognized. Right. Mm -hmm. And imagined. Yeah. And or we don't know where we like are now. All we know is that we are at a place where there could potentially be a poem sitting at a table that is there. That's the only thing that actually is there. Everything else is in the past. Wow. Yeah, I think wow is... <laughs> That's why I love poem talk. <laughs> that wow. How he had needed a place to go to in his own direction. How he had recomposed the pines, shifted the rocks, and picked his way among clouds for the outlook that would be right, where he would be complete in an unexplained completion. The exact rock where his inexactnesses would discover at last the view towards which they had edged, where he could lie in gazing down at the sea, recognize his unique and solitary home. The four of you as poets must have had a moment where you carried the fantasy of um, the exact rock you know, I'm going to, do, I can do, and then there's this moment where you realize not only can't you do that, that that was a ridiculous juvenile fantasy, but that the stuff that would come from abandoning that fantasy would be the poems that you would care about. Do you, do you recall that uh, superhero uh, language theory of your earlier selves where you could <laughs> perfectly accomplish in an exact rock kind of way? And what did that lead you to? And do you have a moment where you encountered the inexactnesses? Hmm. Hmm. Monica, who loves poem talk, is thinking that she has had that experience. <laughs> Not really. Not really? No, because no I think... No poets have that anymore, right? 
I don't know. I think some might, but, I th but what what he is admitting to have dreamt of accomplishing is kind of colonialist. Yeah, it is. I mean, it He's is the possibility of, of of writing a poem that could take the place of a mountain. I think by the time that I come into thought. a picture and I start writing, it is clearly your poem will never replace the mountain. And if it tries to replace a mountain, it's you, bad. You're, stay it's away. Bad. Stay away. Wow, that exactly. was. Two in a row, two brilliant things in a row. From Monica, who <laughs> likes poem talk. <laughs> well, it goes back to Crispin as the letter C and the, the colony. The that comedian is letter C, yeah. I was going to say I never had that moment, but then I remembered none of us can agree on what the exact rock is, so maybe I had it and I just don't know it. But mm. the similar moment I, I did have in my youth was I, I always had the feeling about my own writing that what I was, there were things I wanted to read that didn't exist, which is. Not right. exactly the same thing as right. having that view of exactness and so forth. Right. Yeah. I mean, maybe it's just the experience prior to the decision to become a writer. You know, you're reading some great high realist 19th century British novel that actually for a couple of pages pretends to think that it has reproduced the social world of ah, yes, England yes, or Europe yes. at that time and that it's right on the page and you really don't need to pack a bag and go to Paris or London because it's, you know, the Elliot, George Eliot or Charles Dickens has just done it for you, and yay, that fantasy of realism. I don't think Stevens was ever a realist, but I think he did climb rather obsessively a lot of mountains. He went on hikes every Sunday when he was living in Manhattan, and I think he thought he was getting something from it. I think he swallowed whole the romantic fantasy, but anyway. The exactnesses, inexactnesses, um, and the deadliness of, of exaction in a poem reminded me of Dickinson and telling the truth but telling it slant, mm. um, which really doesn't have anything to do with the Whitman <laughs> at the end. Right. It's I mean, at the end, it's, uh, you know, we have the individual poet, solitary, removed, unique and longing for the origin of all people right. we climbed out of the ocean so and that's been satirized or ironized in this poem yes and the dickinson dickinsonian mode has been affirmed yes but and it's you know it's the uh, the end is kind of the um antithesis of the whitmanian whatever adam every particle belongs to me is good thank you um this is like the ultimate anti-populist moment right here. With Can you say more about that? Because, you know, we've, we were edging in that direction, I think. Well, it's like poet against the world and, um, mm. you know, individualism and the Dickinsonian solitary poet writing in, um, you know, in exclusion from society uh, and kind of here grappling with a mountain um, with no sign of other humans. It is rather lonely. <laughs> is it possible also that the mountain for Stevens has religious um, symbolism too, given some of the other poems where he's, so I think, I think of the solid, his sense of being solitary and loneliness, lonely in relationship to a world, an American world, where religion is very prominent. Um, and, you know, his direction is to, of course, to walk away from that. He doesn't believe in that. But he writes about that constantly, about taking on um, this notion of um, 
the poem, I mean, you could very well have said the poem that took the place of God. That would be yeah. equally true for it. And the early Stevens. Stevens, the Stevens of Sunday morning. Mm -hmm. Even right. the, you know, the, the early Stevens is the post-Christian Stevens who seeks a supreme fiction in right. mm -hmm. poetry as right. not just art, but religion, right? And that's a poem who's being remembered mm -hmm. here, remembered and distanced from, or remembered and affirmed, remembered and felt nostalgic for? These are all questions, Alden. Mm -hmm. What's his tone toward that? Well, again, the, the thing that's so striking is that the nostalgic remembering of a time of a need, which he is either no longer worrying about or gone past or something or the other. Uh, like Tyrone, I won't do a, a lecture on phenomenology, but you know, from the time he was sitting in George Santayana's classes at Harvard all through the 20s and, and right up to the end, he shares with people like Williams that almost rage to be able to present the thing itself not metaphysically as it is in the real world, but as it appears in consciousness. Mm -hmm. And that gets us to the supreme fiction again and so forth. But in the end, still, he's still not satisfied because it's as if he needs that need that he, that he had before. Yeah. Not ideas about the thing, but the thing itself. But that poem is about ideas about the thing itself. Yeah. Well, that's the problem. That is the problem. <laughs> We have been a very, um, I wouldn't say gentle, but this is not a, an outlook, a worldview that anybody at this table shares. Kate says no, Monica says no, Tyrone says no. I'm not sure what the worldview is in this poem, to tell you the truth. Well, before we get there, let's look at the word outlook. It's obviously something of a pun on an outlook on a mountain is actually a place where you can see things. Mm -hmm. Promontory. Mm -hmm. yeah. mm -hmm. yeah. Well, I mean, there's a sense in which we, we all would like to, to be at the outlook that would be right, but I don't think very many of us think there is such a place. That's the difference between modernism and what came after? Well, but it's already here. <laughs> Meaning what? He wanted... Oh, that doubt uh, is already there. Yeah, in, in, in the same way that, you know, um, from, the, from the time of the late Victorians, um, and Matthew Arnold in particular, is that since that the world was once afloat in a sea of belief, and now you just hear the tides rushing away everywhere. So that's there at the very outset of modernism and never goes away and just becomes more accentuated with time. Mm. Unless, you know, you, like an Elliot, you become sort of a late life re Christian, re christened Christian. He was re christened, wasn't he? Elliot? Say, yeah, yeah. So, mm. Elliot, yeah. yeah. So unless you make that turn late in life, I think from modernism through postmodernism to this time, most of us still have a sense. That we might have a sense that there's a, a place where we can have an outlook on our political world that might be right. Well, uh, right is a pretty strong word is, if you think yeah. of outlook as ideology yeah. or dis social disposition. But a place from which we can actually see the universe the way it is, I don't think very many of us And seeing from up high is also problematic yeah. because it's just a metaphor, right? You don't really climb a mountain in order to get a better view of the world. That's bullshit. Well, but also what's, what's really striking to me here is that he, he's not really talking about uh, uh, getting a great view on nature, say, or, or, the, or the sublime, right? No, It's all. really, it's all just like a mirror image of himself. What he he's looking for, he wants to see himself. I remember that guy yeah. down there. Mm -hmm. And yeah. as Kate reminds us, that guy wanted to be up here. <laughs> exactly, and it's, it's just about recognizing, it's, it's the spot from which he can recognize his unique and solitary home. It's but like, then the, that displacement, because, yeah, it's like, oh, there I was. Who but is I'm, helped by this? Am I now? <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. No, I interrupt you. I, I was just going to say he's like Moses, 
It going is. up to the top of the mountain, it's very but he's, mosaic. he's not going to come back down. He's just yes. going to keep what he finds there. You know? And he doesn't need to go because the Ten Commandments are turned in the dust on the table right there <laughs> in his reading room. Yeah, who's, who's, Stevens is the prophet of what? Or for whom? Like what's of the modern, Of modern selfhood. Mm-hmm. And exactly. the people are still out there with that golden calf, aren't they? <laughs> <laughs> Things have gotten better. Kate, you feeling a little glum about this? No. <laughs> do I have glum? No, I love this poem. Why do you love it? Well, first, I love the kind of concession of futility, which is not something you see in Stevens and his younger not at all self um, so there's there's kind of a wistful weariness in it and an acceptance of um, not failure but uh, inexactness and um, sort of being willing to live with it or die with it I guess in this case let's go around and get final thoughts from all of us uh, something you had you want to start down there okay yeah. <laughs> uh, something you intended to say in this conversation but haven't had a chance to yet Tyrone Williams final thought <laughs> on call um, I don't have final thoughts except you know this poem the way I think about poems is they echo each other I mean they for me they remind me of other poems and so forth and so um, in a strange way this poem reminds me of the persona in the poem reminds me of the persona in Tintern Abbey um, where there's also a sense of, of reaching limits uh, futility um, and the limit is the limit of a life when at the end of that poem he turns it over to his sister Dorothy um, that she'll be able to witness these things in a future that he won't exist in. And even in a weird way, the uh, poem by Tennyson um, called Ulysses, I think that's the name of it, where he imagines Ulysses retire in retirement and thinking about his great travels and glories and defeats and so forth, and still longing, even though his body can't do it, but still longing to be out there on the sea mm -hmm. again. So um, it's one of those, to me, one of those in the century heroic male poems about you know not being able to do the sort of things that you were able to do, not having that right. hubris that you once had, and yeah. maybe you know settling down into the, um, accepting limits. A footnote to that: he rewrote the Ulysses poem, Tennyson's poem, from the point of view of Penelope. It's called "The World Is Meditation," and mm -hmm. I'm not saying that yeah. he was successful in reproducing yeah. Penelope's subject position, right. but. <laughs> It's an mm. interesting thing, given that that mm. Tennyson's poems about right. some kind of diminution, and you know Ulysses in retirement, and Stevens would take he takes the point of view of Penelope, who sits in a mirror in front of a mirror, and keeps combing her hair while she thinks of Ulysses talking. She's imagining right. him coming home. Mm. It's quite a powerful thing. Mm. Monica, final thought on this? I have a final question. Oh, that's dangerous. Not a thought, really. Uh, I mean, not, not a final thought, but... Uh, Is it a question we'll have to answer? Maybe, maybe. Okay, so what about that lie there? I find a contradiction in that last couplet because I find it very difficult to be lying and gazing down at the sea at the same time. How could you be lying and gazing oh, down at the sea? If you have a fear of heights and you go to a mountain, mm -hmm. 
you creep over to the edge. I have a fear of heights. Okay. And you lie down. You lie down. And you look at the, look over okay. the edge because okay. you're afraid. I see. Because I was thinking he might we be lying. We actually answered the question. Yeah, I've done that. Okay. Yeah, I've done that. All right. Okay. Yeah. That, that, that solves but is my lie, question. Is lie only meaning lying well, as in supine? Or is it some other question. kind of fiction? Is lie there deliberately left open? Yeah. Uh, an intention with gazing down to suggest that perhaps this was a lie. All poems are lies, especially poems that think that they're mountains. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Kate, final thought? Um, I'm just looking at um, the qualities of the language and appreciate how, how it plods um, word for word for word up the mountain, the breathing. Um, he gives it a lot of space that evinces sort of trudging up a mountain, and um, it's opposed to the Baroque language play of his earlier poems. Very cool. I'm writing that down. Alan? Well, no, I'm going to feel that because I'm not going to get a very cool, but uh, I'm, I'm struck by the phrase unexplained completeness. Um, part of what he had needed, part of this nostalgia for this needing was a, a desire to have this completeness that would be beyond explanation, that would need explanation. And of course, for Wallace Stevens, there can never be any such thing. There, there's no, there are always more words. He's always going to be explaining something, and it's usually the same two or three things. Right. Um, and so that, again, that's the impossibility of what he had felt needful for in the past, and now he needs that need in, in an odd kind of way. Oh, that's great. I, I got very, great. I didn't get a very cool, but I got That's very cool. Actually, I have, I have a final thought, but uh, maybe two, actually, uh, uh, moderator's uh, prerogative. Um, uh, following up on the unexplained completion, I read that almost the same way as you do. I just want to comment on it. It's where he would be complete in unexplained completion. It's not um, where he would be complete after so long of not complete. It's the unexplained part, mm -hmm. right, is what prevented sense of completion. And I think that unexplained, not to, not to make too much of this, um, the unsayable ineffability of what, what as a poet he and maybe most poets really want to achieve, mm -hmm. not that kid reading a 19th century novel thinking that what Dickens really wanted to do was be perfectly describing London at that moment and be thought of as a kind of verbal mirror of reality, but actually actually Dick, Dickens longed for the X that's not sayable about people's pain or deprivation or whatever it is, loss. And I think being complete in an unexplained completion, that unexplained is the key here. He wants to make sure that he realizes that completeness can include the unsayable X that is itself a complete understanding of what it is to be a poet, to be, not be able to say the things, not be able to say a mountain. Um, but another final thought, or maybe my real final thought, is um, this thing that he does at the end of his life, which I admire so much, he has a poem called Long and Sluggish Lines, where he writes a poem and he says, and the lines are long, his lines at the end are usually quite short and precise like this. Well, these are long lines, but they're very precise. Um, that one is long, long lines, and he's basically saying, at so much more than 70, you can't write a short line. I'm not good anymore. 
I'm kind of slovenly. This isn't working out. Hey, wait a minute. I sat down to write a poem about long and sluggish lines, and I can control the sluggish line because I can do sluggish if you ask me to do sluggish. And suddenly he gets reinvigorated by, the, by knowing he can do it still. In this case, he can do sluggish. The end of the imagination had itself to be imagined, imagined, he said. I get to the palm at the end of the mine, and wow, am I good at imagining the end of me. And I think there's a little bit of that in this mm. poem, saying, you know, I can't really do it anymore, but boy, I'm really good at writing a poem about I hate how mm -hmm. I can't do it anymore. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, we like to end poem talk with a minute or two of Gathering Paradise, which is a chance for several of us, or all of us, if you're quick, to spread wide our narrow, aforementioned Dickinsonian hands to gather a little something really poetically good to hail or commend someone or something going on in the poetry world. Basically a recommendation. Start at that end. Okay. Oh, touche. <laughs> you have one? Of course. <clears throat> Unfortunately, I can't remember if I already used this one, but I, I don't think I did. If I did, it's just double paradise. Um, just out uh, from Harmony Holiday, a jazz funeral for, for Uncle Tom. Which, can you hold that so the camera can so get it? It's a wonderful, <laughs> wonderful book. Uh, from, what is the name of this little press here? Birds LLC, it's Birds LLC, which is a limited liability corporation, so I'm a little, little confused by that. Uh, but yes, Harmony Holidays, a jazz funeral for Uncle Tom, has a piece on the back, Uncle Tom, America's favorite Negro is dead. Uh, it's quite an astonishing book, and as we're gonna hear in our panel a little bit later on, there's a Stevens connection here. Mm. Thank you, Kate Colby. I would like to recommend um, the Italian physicist Carlo Rovelli's The Order of Time, which is a remarkably slim volume um, that takes a poetic approach to explaining the physical properties of time um, for the layperson. And it's just wonderful. His economy of language and trying to explain, you know, gravity and space-time continuity is Spell remarkable. the last name. Rovelli, R-O-V-E-L-L-I. Thank you. Monica? So my contribution right now is not really about the poetry world, but it is about uh, an expansion of the ways in which we understand modernism. There was an exhibition that is about to close at the Art Institute of Chicago um, called In a, In a Cloud, In a Wall, In a Chair. And it is a beautiful exhibition centered on six modernist designers, artists, all women who went to Mexico and discovered new approaches to their craft through their immersion in different um, art, uh, communities of artisans uh, around Mexico, Mexico City in particular. I mean, different places of, the, of, of, of Mexico, the country too. And um, Annie Albers is in that show. Uh, a lot of her weaving comes from her learning uh, of pre-Hispanic weaving techniques and working with uh, local weavers in Mexico. Ruth Asawa, who had been in an internment camp, uh, then went to Black Mountain, met a Mexican designer, and ended up making those beautiful pieces out of baskets through learning weaving techniques, I mean, basket-making techniques in Mexico. And there's four other artists in the show. They're all women, and they're fantastic, and um, it's really an expansion of the canon that is to be celebrated and engaged with. Fantastic. Mm -hmm. Do you, since this poem talk won't come out until the show is probably gone, yes. would you say a few keywords that people can use to search for yes, there any will kind be, of remnants of the show? Mm -hmm. There's a catalog, and again, the title is In a Cloud, in a Wall, in a Chair. And basically, 
We could say that there was poetry in a wall and a chair and in a cloud, but the argument is that there was design in all those things. And it's by Very Clara cool. Porcet, really cool and woman. And mostly at the Art Institute or only at the Art Institute? The show is only at the Art Institute, but the catalog is really great, actually. So Fantastic. check out the, the catalog. Thank you, that's mm -hmm. great. Uh, my uh, Gathering Paradise has to do with this group here. We have gathered in Seattle here at the Modern Language Association Conference, and uh, we'll be walking over from here to uh, the conference itself and doing a panel on Stevens. Um, each of my friends here uh, has picked two poems by Stevens. Um, actually, uh, Alan picked three, or is it four? Three parts three, of one poem. Three cantos from uh, The Man with the Blue Guitar. But anyway, a couple of texts, and um, basically I'm going to be asking them you know, why and whether what that has to do with their own interests and practice as poets. And we are going to be recording that session. And when this poem talk comes out, part of the program notes will include a video player so that people can watch that panel at the same time as watch and listen to this, yeah. to this conversation. So thank you in advance to all of you for that. Well, that's all the unique and solitary homes we have time for on Poem Talk today. Poem Talk at the Writer's House is a collaboration of the Center for Programs in Contemporary Writing and the Kelly Writer's House at the University of Pennsylvania, way back east, and the Poetry Foundation, poetryfoundation.org. Thanks so much to my guests, Tyrone Williams, Monica De La Torre, Alden Nielsen, and Kate Colby, and to Poem Talk's directors and engineers today, Zach Cardner and Chris Martin. A little round of applause for these two unseen characters and to Poem Talks editor, the same amazing Zach Cardner, and a shout out to Nathan and Elizabeth Light for their very generous support of Poem Talk. In our next episode, the Poem Talk crew will have driven up the coast from Seattle to Vancouver, British Columbia, where just a couple days from now, we're joined by Daphne Marlett, Fred Waugh, and Meredith Quatermain. We will talk about Daphne Marlett's poem, Arriving. And I want to say something about arriving. It's the first poem in a book by Daphne called Here and There, published in 1980, and it celebrates uh, Daphne and her partner's arrival in the Kootenays for a long summer stay with some friends, including Fred Waugh uh, and his wife. And the poem Arriving is about arriving in the car at this wonderful destination and all the swimmers and all the poets and the conversation, the poem talk, will include Fred. So mm. it'll be a lot of fun. Well, this is Al Filreis, and I hope you'll join us for that or another episode of Poem Talk.